Listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. IRE with you on your beat for 40 years. This week, interviewing sources in difficult situations. I'm George Barney. On this episode, we'll hear from Cheryl Thompson, a Washington Post investigative reporter who dug deep into the killings of witnesses in Maryland and D.C. The nature of the story meant that she had to do many interviews with grieving families and standoffish officials. She remembers the first time she called Cheryl Green, a woman whose son had been killed to keep him from testifying in court. And I called her in July, and it was the first anniversary of her son's death. And I didn't realize it at the time I called her. Next, we'll hear from another D.C. area investigative reporter, NBC4's Tisha Thompson. We'll talk about the art of the interview. And since you might have noticed we have two Thompsons in the episode, we'll be using first names to distinguish. One major point of Tisha's candid discussion on interview subjects is the idea that you have to get inside the head of the person you're interviewing and figure out how to put potentially reluctant subjects at ease. One way you can do this is by anticipating what they'll be asking themselves. Number one problem, is my house a mess? Do I have to clean? That's all coming up on the IRE Radio Podcast. We all know the pop culture version of the witness protection program. Someone sees a crime, maybe a mob-related murder, right? In exchange for their testimony, the witness is given a new identity. Or maybe they spend some time at a safe house. Of course, people in real life also witness crimes, and witness protection is a real option too, though it's not always offered or taken. Witnesses are killed, I think more than people realize. And witnesses are intimidated way more than people realize. That's Cheryl W. Thompson, an investigative reporter for the Washington Post and an associate professor at George Washington University. Reporting is my first love. It will always be my first love. It is near and dear to me. Uh, but, but teaching is, you know, a, a, a close second. Cheryl published her investigation into witness killings and intimidation in the Post in January of this year. The article was called, Dozens in D.C., Maryland, Paid the Ultimate Price for Cooperating with Police, and was edited by Mike Simmel. Over several months of reporting, Cheryl would find at least 37 people who had been killed in Washington, D.C. and Maryland since 2004 in order to silence them. On top of that, at least 320 witnesses had been intimidated in Maryland in the last decade. Intimidation can range from threats to assaults, even non-fatal shootings. And Cheryl uncovered this story by following her instincts after a phone call with D.C.'s police chief. Cheryl was reporting on murder conviction rates in the District of Columbia back in 2012 when a FOIA request she made came back with a pattern that grabbed her attention. That pattern was a couple of dozen killings listed as witness executions. But it wasn't only the number that got my attention when I asked police chief Kathy Lanier about it, she got a little upset. And so I thought, well, you know, anytime an official gets upset, a reporter's antenna should go up. Look, nobody wants to make public that witnesses are being killed. You know, that's, that's, no, nobody wants that out. Um, but, but it's my job as a reporter to inform and to educate. And if it's happening and it's a pattern, then 
you know, it's my job to do so. And and so basically, you know, I didn't get into great debate with her at the time, but the fact that she sort of um, was riled by it sort of made me think, oh, there's probably something here, and I should come back on it, and that's what I did. Once she wrapped up her other reporting, Cheryl began to create a database of all the witnesses that were killed. From there, she began gathering all the information she could about each victim. For some cases, ongoing open investigations meant she couldn't get information from police. The first victim Cheryl and I talked about was 22-year-old Rob Alexander. In the article, there is a grainy picture of Alexander. He's grinning with an open-mouthed smile that lights up his whole face. Another, much more recent picture shows an alley glowing orange under a single streetlight, where Alexander was fatally shot in 2005. Police believe the slaying was an attempt to keep him quiet about a cab driver killing he had witnessed. Alexander's case remains unsolved. Cheryl was able to find Alexander's next of kin by digging up his obituary. She remembers the call she made. There was an older woman who answered the phone, and I asked for the mom, and she told me she died. And so then I asked, of course, to whom I was speaking, and it ended up it was the grandmother, who was not exceptionally chatty, I might add, but she warmed up to me the longer we talked. And, and, and I got lucky with her because Rob and his mom lived with her. And she was there the day that he got a phone call from someone he knew asking him to meet them down the street at a park. And the grandmother, as soon as he left the house, um, she heard the shots. And she and the mom ran down there, and they saw him. There he was, sprawled under a streetlight, and he was dead. I think it was nine bullets. Alexander's story would become her lead. The grandmother also gave Cheryl the contact information for the father, who lived in another state. He was also very cooperative, and he was the one who provided Cheryl with the picture of his son. But not all phone calls to relatives were that straightforward. I actually called a woman, and I didn't know at the time. And I called her in July, and it was the first anniversary of her son's death. And I didn't realize it at the time I called her. And I was very apologetic, but... It also, I think, was very healing for her to, like, just open up and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And w- was, that, um, was that one of the women who ended up making it into the story? Yes. Her name was Cheryl Green. That I do remember. And um, Christopher Ballard was her son. He was, he was killed. He was 38 years old, and he was killed um, a, a July, the July prior. And it was her, um, I believe it was, only son. Cheryl was also able to obtain the 911 call Christopher Ballard made after the brother of the man Ballard's testimony put away drove up to him on the street and threatened to stab him. Oh, the 911 call was a battle to get. I forgot about the 911 call. The 911, yeah, the 911 call we had to, um, I filed a FOIA um, with the D.C. Fire Department and um, they turned us down for privacy issues, so then I sent it over to the police department, which turned me down for privacy issues. And I said, well, the guy is dead. Where's the privacy issue? And so anyway, it's beyond my pay grade, and so I sent it up to our general counsel because they're very smart and they're very good. And, um, you know, there was this privacy issue. But in the end, it was up to the mother if she agreed to release it because she was his next of kin, then, you know, we could get it. And so I called her up and asked her if she would agree to uh, give it to us, and she did. 
and we got it. And here's some of that 911 call. It was over 17 minutes. Here comes the officer. You see the officer? Here you go. Hey! They go to the officer. Okay. He, does he see you? Yeah. He does? Yes or no? Yeah. Okay, This sir. man right here does not threaten me. Terminating call MPD one c zero seven. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Not all sources were as cooperative as the families, however. I remember um, I, I had an instance of uh, there was a there was a case where a guy was working as an informant with the Drug Enforcement Administration with the DEA, and he was killed. Um, and I remember contacting the DEA, which I used to cover back in the day, and they want to talk about it. And I needed them to talk about it, right? It's like, well, wait a minute, you need to talk about this. This guy was killed on your watch. Um, and so they didn't want to talk about it. So I thought, how am I going to get them to talk? And so I called back and I said, look, I said, this story is going in the paper and you guys aren't looking great, you know, because we don't have a response from you. Um, but know that this is a case that I'm writing about. And, you know, within a matter of days, I had the, you know, the, the, Washington chief from the DA on the line. There were like five people on a conference call, um, and they answered all my questions. So that was sort of striking to me, um, and I really appreciate it that they did that because I just think it makes the story more balanced when you can get all sides in there. And one source in particular proved troublesome. If you remember that number from the top, Cheryl found at least 320 cases of witnesses being intimidated in the last decade in Maryland. Since there was no central repository for witness intimidation statistics, Cheryl had to contact each county for their totals and add them all together. Cheryl tried to get the same data from some nearby locations, but struck out. Officials in Washington, D.C. said they didn't track that data, and as for trying to get witness intimidation numbers from nearby Fairfax County, Virginia... It was exhausting. I called the police department, which said it didn't track such things. So then I contacted the courts, which said it didn't track such cases. So then I went back to the police department and submitted a FOIA and was denied the data unless the post agreed to pay more than $12,000 before any research was conducted. Um, and, of course, we, we declined to do that. Police officials said the cost reflects the number of people it would take, and they said it would take 20 to review more than 1,200 cases to determine which ones involved witness intimidation. Were they open to negotiation at all, or was it just a hard... No. No. That was their letter. $12,000 plus or no records. Wow. And so when, when somebody does that, you just go, if you're not willing, $12,000, I mean, look, the Washington Post has forked over a lot of money over the years for FOIAs. We don't mind paying reasonable costs for documents. $12,000, um, the powers that be thought was excessive. So that detail became part of Cheryl's story. And so we didn't get the records. And I got to tell you, that little tidbit in that story about Fairfax County wanting to charge us $12,000 upset a lot of readers. What was their like, reaction? Well, how dare they want to charge that excessive amount for public records? They should just turn the stuff over. It's, an, it's a government. There were 153 comments on the online story when we recorded this podcast in early May, several about Fairfax. One commenter wrote, 
Fairfax should have been able to provide that information with a simple database search. I really wonder what century they're living in. And some of the comments echo what I was thinking. Cheryl was reporting about people who were killed because they were willing to talk about crimes, and now she's talking about those crimes, with a byline. I asked her what she thought about the safety of her sources and her own personal safety. You know, in 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 terms of my sources safety, I had um, a couple of cases who, where I had mothers who didn't want their photos in the paper or didn't want to do a video interview. Remember, it's multimedia world now. <laughs> and I respected that. Um, I was really thankful that they took the time to share their stories with me because a lot of people wouldn't have done that. Um, these are private people. They're not government officials. They do not have to respond to me. They don't have to talk to me. Um, but I'm always thrilled when they do. In terms of concern about my own personal safety, nah. I've And I've encountered some dangerous people over the years, killers, federal police informants, but I never let fear um, drive my story. I never let fear get in the way of a good story. No, I can't worry about it. Another point Cheryl had to consider was fairness to both the victims and law enforcement. It's not as straightforward as the police aren't protecting witnesses in every case across the board. She made sure to include these nuances in her story and back them up with numbers. If the U.S. Attorney's Office said, well, you know what, we offered them protection and they declined, okay, well, then that's what we had to report. Um, Again, it goes to patterns. You know, there were some people who were, there were five people who were offered protection. There were 20 people who weren't offered protection. Um, There were nine people who declined protection, and there were three people who were, we didn't know about. and so some were never, and we, we, we had a caveat because the U.S. attorney um, kept emphasizing that, well, look, these people weren't government witnesses. And I'm like, well, what's the difference? A witness is a witness. And so, you know, there was this um, sort of um, playing around with words. And so in fairness, we put that some were never offered it because authorities didn't consider them government witnesses. And that's how we sort of... You know, it was fair to everybody. After the story came out, Cheryl was pleased to hear, or really not hear, the phones ringing with calls from angry officials. No official call to complain about a story or complain about the facts is always a good thing. As part of her reporting, Cheryl had to handle a lot of interviews. And as we heard, some of them were especially charged emotionally. Coming up after the break, Tisha Thompson will talk about interview techniques to get inside the head of your subjects and ultimately get a better interview. Tisha Thompson is an investigative reporter at NBC4 in Washington, D.C., and she's been an IRE member since she was 16 years old. At this year's IRE Watchdog Workshop in D.C., Tisha led a panel on the art of the interview. Tisha covered a lot of topics, including breaking down interview subjects into three types, ordinary folk, experts, and the accused. One of Tisha's techniques is to engage the person you're talking to as a human being, someone you have something in common with. This is a good thing to remember for every interview, but especially for subjects who aren't experts or officials and could be giving you the first interview of their life. The thing that you must remember in the back of your head at all times is rarely, if ever, are we interviewing any of these people because something good happened to them. This is not feature reporting 101. 
This is investigative reporting 101. We are a different kind of reporter. We don't get to do the kitten stories. I'm sorry, we just don't. No grumpy cat in our life, right? That means the people we are interviewing have gone through the pain of watching someone get hurt or die, or they're about to go through the pain of losing a job, money, or their reputation. Tisha talked more about getting inside a source's head, starting with this example from the 1976 film about Watergate, All the President's Men. Put away your reporter's pad. Do you remember in a certain movie, there was a certain guy named Bernstein who was taking notes on napkins and toilet paper? It's because he knew if he walked in with a reporter's pad, it would be it would be seen like he was trying to interview. If you walk in with nothing, it gets, it, people just calm down. Then you say, okay, well, we're gonna bring in some gear. Where do you wanna do it? Show us the floors you don't wanna scratch. Just be conscious of their home. And if you're doing an interview in a source's home, remember that the setting may not automatically put them at ease. Number one problem, is my house a mess? Do I have to clean? So the first thing I sometimes say, because I can hear it in their voices, is please don't clean your house for me. We don't have to do it at your house. We can do it outside. Because I wouldn't let anyone in my house. My house could be immaculate, but I have small children, and I just don't want people to see that I just haven't gotten the dishes done. It may be immaculate to you, but to them it's a disaster. Once you're in, pay attention to your surroundings. This is the key to everything I do. Oh my God, I look at their wall and I look at their landscaping and I start to talk to them about whatever it is that I see. Hunting is a go-to, landscaping is a go-to, pictures of military, anything is a go-to because those are sources of pride. Those are things that they're proud of and they're happy about. So just get them comfortable, get them talking. The worst thing you can do is go into an interview cold. There are other roadblocks to keep in mind, too. Concerns about appearances can threaten to kill a broadcast interview before it even gets started. I just recently did, in November, a series on rape. I had women all willing to do silhouette interviews, but didn't want to show their faces. I spent an hour talking to this woman as they were setting up the cameras, as they were getting ready for the interview. And, you know, I was trying to get her to go on camera because in the day and age of sex assault reporting, we have got to get as much credibility as we can, right? And I'm walking her through and I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to get in her head. And she keeps talking about, I wish I'd gotten my nails done. She keeps talking about, you should have seen what my hair looked like. I can't believe I didn't get my hair done. She keeps talking about how she just recently had surgery about a year ago, and now she can barely move, and she just, ugh, ugh, ugh. And I finally say to her, do you want to do this silhouette because you think you look fat? This is a rape victim. And she's like, yeah, who would want to have sex with me? Okay? It wasn't about the rape. It was about the fact she hadn't gotten her hair and her nails done. And I had to have a very honest conversation with her, like, yeah, okay, so you've gained some weight. That, that's nothing compared to what you've gone through. And you have to be that human being. And don't underestimate the power of a simple one-word follow-up. My favorite question, huh? It's a simple technique that turns a perceived weakness into a strength. You play like you don't understand. And their confidence is growing, particularly if they're con artists. They've got you. I've got this reporter figured out. I'm not worried about this. Let me tell you how it goes down. Booyah. Then why did you? Then why does this document say? Then why do people tell us? Let them think you're stupid. Because you're not, but they don't even know that. 
that's going to be your best soundbite. That's going to be the moment of you're going to see it on their face. And in television, that's the most priceless moment we can get, right? IRE members can listen to Tisha's whole panel on The Art of the Interview on our website. Check the link in the show notes. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, our inbox is always open. If you like the episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and she can be reached at web at IRE.org. Additional editing is done by IRE Sean Shinneman, who is also a regular contributor to the podcast, and will be hosting the podcast from here on out. This month marks the one-year anniversary of the IRE radio podcast, and this month I'll also be graduating from the Missouri School of Journalism and moving out east. Working on this podcast with Sarah and Sean and Shelby has been the highlight of my four years here in Columbia, Missouri, and I'm thrilled they'll be continuing this project. In fact, Sean is working on an amazing episode right now about an AP investigation into slave labor in Southeast Asia. So thank you so much for spending some time with me and all these great reporters every few weeks over the last year. I'm looking forward to joining all of you as a regular listener. So for the last time for me, that's it from this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Varney. Podcast.